Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. This is a little shout out before we get into today's show. Please think about Perion to support all the shows in the District of Wonders. As you know, we are now a paying market and we need to keep afloat. The most important thing is to keep going. Please pop over to Perion. Any little amount will, will certainly help keep these shows going. A regular subscription on Perion is just the way forward to make sure we can put out these shows weekly, pay the writers and just keep going well into the future. We've been going 10 years there now, thanks to all your loyal support. Please keep it up and pop over to Patreon. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Aside from submissions being opened, I don't really have any business to discuss due to family obligations during the holiday season. I haven't got much in the way of my own recreational reading, so let's just dive right in. Oh, wait just a minute. Next week, did you know that it'll be our fifth anniversary? That's right. Next week will mark five years to the day that our first episode aired. Our editor, Scott Silk, has taken the reins on a special story to mark the occasion, so make sure to stay tuned for that one. And how could I forget to mention the District of Wonders has put together some new intro and outro music. The music is sung by Diane Serverson, who will be linked in the show notes. So, thank you for that, Diane. Now let's get on to our stories. Mark Morris has written over 25 novels, among which are Toady, Stitch, The Immaculate, The Secret of Anatomy, Fiddleback, The Deluge, and four books in the popular Doctor Who range. He is also the author of two short story collections, Close to the Bone and Long Shadow, Nightmare Light and several novellas. His short fiction, articles, and reviews have appeared in a variety of anthologies and magazines, and he is editor of Cinema Macabre, a book of horror movie essays by genre luminaries for which he won the 2007 British Fantasy Award, its follow-up Cinema Futura, and the Spectral Book of Horror Stories. His script work includes audio dramas for Big Finish Productions' Doctor Who and... Jago and Lightfoot Ranges. 
and also for Bafflegab's Hammer Chillers series, and his recently published work includes the official movie tie-in novelization of Darren Aronofsky's Noah. Two novellas, It Sustains from Earthly Publications, which was nominated for a 2013 Shirley Jackson Award, and Albion Fay, Spectral Press, and three new novels, Zombie Apocalypse, Horror Hospital from Constable and Robinson, The Black from P.S. Publishing, and The Wolves of London, book one of the Obsidian Heart Trilogy from Titan Books. Upcoming is Wrapped in Skin, a new short story collection from Shizine Publications, The Society of Blood, book two of the Obsidian Heart Trilogy, and as editor, the second spectral book of horror stories. Here comes our first story of the night, Mark Morse's Salad Days. He's thirsty. That's his first thought when he wakes up. His throat is dry and there's a metallic taste in his mouth as though he's been sucking coins. He tries to remember where he was last night, but there's a blank. Was he really so far gone? If so, he'll be in for a hard time. It's been happening a bit too often lately, and Angie's starting to get seriously hacked off. He can understand where she's coming from, but at the same time it irritates him that she doesn't appreciate the pressure he's under. His is a high-powered job. Major investors to Sweet Talk on a daily basis. He's swimming with the sharks now. And if he takes his eye off the ball, there's every chance a major deal could go tits up and seriously buttfuck the company's forecasted financial enhancement figures. Too many mixed metaphors and that last thought. But what the hell? Point is, he needs to kick back at the end of the day. He needs a few beers with the kind of people who understand where he's coming from before heading home to his beautiful wife and daughter and being regaled with the trivial ups and downs of the cosseted, leisure-rich life he's provided them with. His body feels oddly numb, as if he's been frozen and is only just starting to thaw out. The messages are seeping down from his head and then up again from his limbs, he gets the impression he's sitting upright, not tucked up in his comfortable king size as he should be. Did he get home late and fall asleep in the armchair? It's weird that he can't remember, but he's sure it'll come to him. It's dark. His eyes are open, but it's dark. It feels like the dead hours, 3, 4 a.m., but here's a weird thing. Every time he blinks, something tickles his eyelashes. It's as though there's a cobweb across his face or a piece of cloth. Suddenly his throat tightens. He swallows and hears it click with dryness. Surely he's not wearing a blindfold. Why would he be? The sudden surge of adrenaline sends tingles through his limbs. He tries to lift an arm, but he can't move. He feels a moment of panic, an overwhelming urge to jump up, wave his immobile arms around, and then he forces himself to calm down. Okay, okay, think about this. Why would he be tied up? Several possibilities spring to mind. First, sex. Could this be a sex game? Did he meet some woman in a bar and go back to her place? If so, he can't remember. And what a bummer that is. He might have had the best sex of his life last night and never be able to recall a thing about it. Although, on the other hand, seeing as though he's tied up, maybe the sex hasn't even started yet. He wonders whether she, 
whoever she is, drugged him. Maybe that's why he can't remember. Oh, Jesus, what if she's some fat old sow desperate for a shag? But if it is sex, where is she? He tries to shout, and that's when he realises he can't open his mouth. There's nothing in it, so he's not gagged. His lips must be sealed with tape. Again he feels a surge of panic. He's suffocating. He can't breathe. No, don't be stupid. Calm down. He's not dying. He can breathe through his nose. He just needs to think. Okay, if it isn't sex, what else? A joke? Some of the guys from the office get pretty wild when they're drunk. Maybe they brought him back to the office and tied him to his chair last night. Maybe he's naked and they've left him here to give his secretary Becky a cheap through when she finds him this morning. He can't tell if he's naked. His body still feels weirdly numb. What was he drinking last night? He didn't succumb to the chilly vodka shots again, did he? Last time he had those, he was sick as a dog. Just thinking about that sends a spike of panic into his head again. What if he throws up? With his tape over his mouth, he'd end up choking on his own vomit. He starts to struggle. But it's no use. His bonds are tight, and he feels as weak as a kitten. He doesn't like this. He doesn't like this at all. If it is a joke, it's a fucking crap one. Those cunts in the office better release him soon, or he'll be straight on to his lawyer the second he gets out of this. He hears a sound. A creaking above his head. It's the sound of someone moving around on an upper floor. And all at once that narrows his options again. Because he knows now... He isn't in the office. The office is a big, modern building. It doesn't have creaking floorboards. So he's in someone's house, after all. Some woman's, hopefully. If it isn't a woman's, then fuck knows what he's got himself into here. The person on the floor above moves around a bit, walking up and down. He hears water running, the soft grumble of it in the pipes, and it reminds him again how thirsty he is. Sometimes it sounds as though the person, his captor, is directly over his head and sometimes their footsteps grow more distant. They're unhurried footsteps, shuffling, as though the person is old or wearing slippers. He's scared, but indignant too. Why is he being ignored? Surely whoever's up there must realise how thirsty he is and how much he needs to pee. He hears the person talking, their voice is muffled, and he can't make out any of the words, but he gets the impression that it's a man's voice. They don't say much, and nobody answers them. Are they talking to themselves? Or to a pet, maybe? He's getting seriously freaked now. Whatever's happening here, it's not good. He's seen those dumb movies about cannibal families who kidnap people and keep them imprisoned in the larder until they're ready to chop them up. But those movies always take place in Texas or the American backwoods, If there were cannibals and Hampstead, people would know about it. There's a series of descending creaks, and he feels fear sluicing through his body. Whoever was moving about upstairs is now coming down. He strains against his bonds, his heart speeding up and adrenaline racing through his system, making him sick and light-headed. He feels an overwhelming urge to either run or fight, but he can do neither, and the helplessness is awful. He begins to hyperventilate as a door opens somewhere nearby and the shuffling footsteps come closer. Then they're in the room with him and the unfulfilled desire to move, to speak, to defend himself is almost too much to bear. 
He braces himself, tensing his muscles, hunching his shoulders as the footsteps approach, then stop. There's the scrape of a chair a few feet away, then a creak as the newcomer settles his or her weight into it. Thirty seconds or more of silence pass, and he feels himself being stared at. It is almost a physical sensation like being touched, like having the newcomer's hands on him. He tries to clamp down on the images in his head, of sharp blades cutting into his flesh, of objects being jabbed into his eyes. The silence stretches out, and is almost a relief when the newcomer speaks. So here you are at last, he says, Richard Jeremy Klein. The man's voice is soft and a little gruff with age. Richard would guess that he's around sixty, maybe older. He doesn't recognise the voice. In fact, he's certain he's never heard it before. I expect you're wondering where you are and why you're here, the man says. Well, rest assured, Richard Jeremy Klein, you'll find out soon enough. There's another creak as the man stands up. His voice is so calm, so normal, that Richard has started to relax a little. But now he tenses up again. I'm going to take off your blindfold now, Richard, because I want you to look at some items I'm about to show you. I'm also going to remove the tape from your mouth so that we can converse. But please don't regard this as an opportunity to call for help. No one will hear you. And it will simply result in my sealing your lips again. Do we understand one another? Richard's instinct is not to comply with anything his captor says, but he realises that this will only be to his disadvantage, so he nods. Jolly good, the man says mildly, and Richard hears him walk across to his chair. He tenses as he feels the slight pressure of the man's fingertips on his cheek and at the faint stale tobacco smell which the man brings with him. This is going to sting a bit, the man says, and he rips the tape from Richard's mouth. Richard jerks backward in his seat, crying out in pain, and his eyes immediately start to water. It hurts more than a little bit. It feels as if the skin covering the lower half of his face has been torn away. For too many seconds, the pain is excruciating. His face feels cold and wet, and he imagined it as a raw red mask seeping blood. Even when the man stands behind him and removes his blindfold, Richard's eyes are too blurred with tears to focus on anything. He sees merely a few undefined shapes hovering in front of him, vaguely defined by the shimmer of light. Deep breaths, the man says, and though Richard wants to tell him to fuck off, he complies, taking deep breaths in and out through his mouth. It seems to work because almost immediately the agony begins to subside. A few seconds later, Richard sits upright, blinks the tears from his eyes and looks around. He's in a fairly normal-looking kitchen, a bit squalid maybe. There's cheap grey lino on the floor, and the gas cooker and waist-high fridge are a little rusty, a little old-fashioned. There's a wooden mug tree and a kettle on the counter, and wall cupboards coated in peeling vinyl that would fool nobody into believing they were made of real wood. There's a small window over the sink, but a plastic Venetian blind the colour of old teeth has been pulled down to hide the view, or to stop nosy neighbours peering in. The only light is provided by a low wattage bulb which has been dimmed yet further by a circular brown shade that resembles a desiccated pufferfish. It's all very 70s, very depressing. Richard would make his contempt known if he wasn't at such a disadvantage. He looks down and sees that he isn't tied up, as he thought, but taped into a wheelchair. Thick silver carpet tape has been wound round and round his forearms and lower legs, securing him to the metal frame. Oh God, he thinks, oh God, the man who did this. 
The old man with the gentle voice is still behind him, out of sight. What is he doing? Getting a knife? An axe? Has he taken off the blindfold so that Richard can see his own blood spurt out when his throat is cut? Has he removed the tape from his mouth so that he can hear Richard's pleas for mercy, his agonized screams? Richard tries to speak, and at first his voice is a rusty croak. He tries to swallow, but his saliva is thick as curd, and all he hears is that dry click, like billiard balls tapping together. He hears the man open a drawer behind him and the scuffle scrape as he takes something out. It doesn't sound like a metal implement, but that reassures Richard not at all. For all he knows, it could be a machete wrapped in cloth or newspaper. The man hums tunelessly as he does whatever it is he's doing. Richard hears him shut the drawer, and then footsteps approach him from behind. Once again he braces himself, hunching his shoulders, but the man walks past and around him. Richard turns his head to the right and sees his captor for the first time. He's unimpressive, unassuming. He is indeed in his early sixties. He's around five ten, but thin, almost scrawny. His grey hair is sparse and untidy. He has scabby nicks on his throat where he's cut himself shaving. He has a face like a sad hawk, beaky nose, watery eyes, downturned mouth, weak chin. He's wearing an off-white shirt and a green cardigan that looks in danger of slipping from his stooped shoulders. He's carrying two large books in his hand, one a photograph album with the plastic cover bearing a garish psychedelic design, and the other a scrapbook, the pages fat and wrinkled with whatever has been pasted into them. He places both books carefully, almost reverently, on the kitchen table. He moves the photograph album so it's directly in front of Richard, and then he steps back and regards Richard as though he's one interesting scientific specimen. Richard glares at him. He's furious, affronted. In his normal life, he would not give this man so much as a second glance. I expect you're thirsty, the man says. Hold on a tick. He crosses unhurriedly to one of the wall cupboards, opens it and takes down a mug. He crosses to the sink and fills the mug with water. Then he shuffles back to Richard, holds out the mug and tilts it towards his mouth. Richard thinks about filling his mouth and spitting water into the man's face, but as soon as the icy wetness touches his lips, he's gulping greedily, his eyes involuntarily closing with the ecstasy of sluicing the dust-dry canyons inside of him. He feels himself coming alive again. He takes such huge gulps that he feels water running down his chin, soaking his collar. But he doesn't care. He drinks until the mug is empty. And then he leans forward, gasping, realising only now that he hasn't once paused for breath. My word, you're a thirsty boy, the man says, and places the mug on the table. Still breathing hard, Richard blinks. The mug bears a miniature version of a poster for an old British comedy movie, Carry On Camping, cartoon caricatures of Kenneth Williams, Sid James and Barbara Windsor, with a bra flying off, swim before Richard's eyes. He remembers watching these films on Sunday afternoons as a kid. He used to love them, but now he thinks they're vulgar and idiotic. Need to pee, he croaks. The old man cups a hand behind his ear. I beg your pardon. I need to pee, Richard repeats more clearly. In his mind, he adds, you old cunt. Oh dear, the man says, pulling the pretend sad face he might display to a child, and which Richard instantly hates him for. I could get you a milk bottle, I suppose. I'm not going to piss in a fucking milk bottle, Richard snaps. Then you'll just have to do it in your pants, the man snarls back at him. His sudden anger is a shock and a timely reminder 
that he is unstable, unpredictable. He must be to hold Richard captive like this. Trying to keep his voice even so as not to antagonize the man, Richard asks, Why am I tied up? The man perches on the edge of the table, and his face cracks into a sly smile. Ah, now, there's a question, he says. Is it one you're going to answer, Richard asks through gritted teeth. Oh, yes, says the man. There's no point being punished if you don't know what it's for, is there? Punished. The word is like a jab in the bladder. It's only through a supreme act of will that Richard is able to hold on to its contents. Despite the drink, the memory of which only worsens the physical discomfort below his waist, his mouth feels dry again. He has to lick his lips several times before his voice feels strong enough to declare, I've never done anything to you. The man's smile turns wolfish, sour. You're as arrogant as the rest of them. Another jab in the bladder. So Richard's not the first. The rest of who, he asks. I think you mean whom, the man smirks at him. Don't fuck with me. Richard's fear makes him snarl. The man's face goes utterly blank, and instantly Richard realises his error. He mustn't antagonise this man, mustn't issue threats that he can't support. Trying his hardest to sound contrite, he says, Sorry, I'm stressed, that's all. Look, I really don't know what's going on here, and I don't care, but you've made a mistake. Whoever you've been looking for, I'm not him. The man's face remains blank. Barely parting his lips, he says, Who do you think I am? I don't know, Richard says, and then thinks it might help his cause if he adds with conviction, I don't want to know. The man leans forward until his face and Richard's are less than a foot apart. It occurs to Richard that he could lunge forward and fasten his teeth on his captor's face if he felt so inclined. But what would that earn him except a reprisal far worse than the momentary pain he can inflict? He stares nervously into the other's watery eyes and sees a sadness there, but also a deadness, and that frightens him more than he can express. You're the same as the rest, the man murmurs eventually. No thought for anyone but yourself. Don't you feel any remorse? For what? Richard asks, barely able to prevent his voice rising in angry frustration. The man looks at him in disgust. And then he opens the photograph album to the first page and pushes it silently toward Richard. Richard looks at a Polaroid snaps of a baby in variously coloured romper suits perched on various knees. In half or more, the photographs... The red-eyed baby is being held by an equally red-eyed woman with podgy cheeks and black framed spectacles. The decor and fashions and hairstyles, all of which are rendered drab by the flatness of the light from the cheap camera's flash, lock these frozen glimpses of light firmly in the mid-1970s. Who's this? Richard asks. The man closes his eyes briefly and says, My son. And who's the woman, your wife? Yes. So where's she? Now, I mean. The man glares at Richard as if his question is crassly insensitive. His voice is husky as he replies, She passed. A long time ago, after. But then he shakes his head and flashes a sly smile, as if he believes Richard is trying to catch him out. He leans forward and turns over to the next page of the album. Richard sees photographs of a toddler developing into a young boy. Here he is, aged three or four, standing in a sunny meadow in a striped T-shirt and yellow shorts. Here he is, blowing out the candles on a birthday cake, bearing the number five and blue icing. 
Here he's sitting on a beach on a windy day, his hair wet from the sea. Here he's grinning at the camera as though celebrating his lack of front teeth, an ice cream clutched in his hand. Richard examines the photographs uncomprehendingly. Very nice, he says, but I have no idea why you're showing me these. The man grimaces and flips the page over again. This time the photograph is bigger. It is a portrait of the boy in a school uniform and it takes up almost the full page. The boy is half squinting, half smiling. He has straight brown hair and clear and brown eyes, freckles, a wide smile. He looks a nice kid, and Richard's about to say so, hoping it will gain favour with the boy's father when he notices the uniform. The boy's wearing a maroon jumper and a maroon and black tie, and on the left breast of the jumper, stitched in white, is the school crest and its name, Riverbeck Secondary School. Richard's mouth goes dry. He still doesn't know what he's doing here, or who the boy and his father are, but suddenly a link has been established. Because the boy is wearing his school uniform, or rather, he's wearing the uniform of the school which Richard attended over twenty years ago. What does this mean? He looks up at his captor and sees the old man is nodding. You're getting it now, aren't you, the man says, his voice clotted with an emotion, which Richard is reluctant to identify. No, Richard says, I'm really not. Liar the man says, and almost casually he steps forward and slaps Richard across the face. The blow stings, but it's more of a shock than anything. It rouses Richard's fury, which all at once he is no longer able to contain. What'd you do that for, you fucking freak? How fucking dare you, he yells. The muscles tighten in his arms and legs as he tries to tear himself free from his restraints. The man steps back, exposing his teeth in expression so hateful it can hardly be termed a grin. Oh, I dare, he says, and his voice is gruff and low. No loving parent would blame me for doing whatever I like to you. In rage, Richard tries to throw himself back and forth in the wheelchair, even though the best he can hope to achieve is to tip the chair over and himself with it. You let me free now, you mad fucker, he shouts. You let me free, or I swear you'll fucking pay for this. The man chuckles. Then, with frightening abruptness, his face becomes serious, almost predatory again. Look at my son, he says. Why should I? Look at him and tell me what you see. Richard looks defiantly at the man. Fuck you, he says. The man takes two steps forward, picks up the carry-on camping mug and sweeps it in an arc against the side of Richard's head. Richard barely has time to flinch before the brain-jarring impact fleetingly preludes a white-hot explosion of pain. Richard hears his left cheekbone shatter and sees jagged white shards of it bursting from his face before realising it's the mug. Nonetheless, there's no mistaking the hot liquid that he has to blink from his left eye and that drips like red coins into the sleeve of his white shirt and onto the wooden table beneath his lolling head. The man steps forward and calmly slides the photograph album out of harm's way. The pain in Richard's head throbs with his pulse. It ebbs and then builds, and for a minute or more, each surge is stronger than the last. He feels he's about to either pass out or throw up, but in the end he does neither. He's vaguely aware of the man crossing to the sink and of the brief gush of water. 
Then the man moves back across the room and waits patiently until Richard's grogginess passes enough for him to raise his head, whereupon he applies a damp grey cloth that smells mustily of bleach to Richard's face, wiping away the blood with enough of a lack of gentleness to make Richard clench his teeth around a hiss of pain. You're mad, he croaks as the man swabs blood and broken crockery from the table so efficiently that Richard can't help but wonder how often he's done this before. If I am, then you're the cause of it, the man says. How the fuck do you work that one out? By way of a response, the man opens the photograph album in front of him. Look at my son, he says. Again, Richard wants to refuse, but he knows his defiance will come back at him tenfold, so he stares groggily at the open album. At first he's not sure what he's seeing. The various snaps seem to depict a series of abstract pinkish-grey shapes besected by thin white loops. He stares harder, and suddenly, like a magic eye picture, the series of photographs acquire meaning. He's looking at a boy in a hospital bed, photographed from several different angles. The boy's shaven score bears an ugly U-shaped scar, and he's attached to pipes and drips and wires which rise from his body to the various apparatuses around the bed like loops of ectoplasm. When Richard raises his head from these images, he sees that the man's eyes are glistening with tears. I don't understand, he says as brusquely as he dares. What is this? What does it look like? Richard does his best to shrug. Like some kid who's ill, who's had an accident bad enough to need an operation on his brain. Some kid, the man repeats, and bares his spittle shiny teeth at Richard. Some kid, is that all he is to you? Richard tries not to flinch from the man's glare. All right, he says grudgingly. I suppose he's your son, but I still don't see... And then a memory, at first so vague, it might have been a scene from an otherwise long-forgotten film, rises briefly in Richard's mind. He pictures the top deck of a bus. How old is he? Twelve? Thirteen? He's with his friends, they're laughing. One of them, Paul Jarvis, has stolen the county swimming cup from the trophy cabinet in the school. Did he do it for a dare? Richard can't remember, but he seems to recall Jarvis being scared of getting caught and expelled. Presumably, this is why, as the bus pulls away, Jarvis throws the cup with its heavy marble base out of the window. The boys cheer, but then someone on the ground below, a girl, starts to scream and doesn't stop. And all at once, Richard has a crystal clear impression of Jarvis's shocked face draining of colour, and then of all the kids on the upper deck scrambling to the back window to see what's happened. All Richard remembers is a crowd of maroon jumpers, like the melee that forms whenever there's a fight in the playground and the bus pulls away. Next day, there's a full school assembly. The headmaster tells them that a pupil has been injured by something thrown from a bus and that if the culprits are found, they'll be expelled. He tells them that this is a very serious matter. He appeals to the pupils to come forward with any information they might have. What happened then, Richard can't remember. He thinks he was scared for a while, and then the whole thing must have simply blown over. He can't recall any of his friends being expelled or suspended or even caned for what happened. And he can't remember what became of the kid either, the one hit by the folding trophy. Did Richard ever even find out his name? As if reading his thoughts, the man places a gnarled finger on one of the photographs of the boy in the hospital bed and strokes it gently, tenderly. His name's Jamie Holland, he says. Richard looks up at him, swallows. I'm sorry, I don't. His name is Jamie Holland. My Jamie. This was the day I lost him. Richard looks again at the photographs, the U-shaped scar, the slack expression, the tubes, the drips. He feels nothing, nothing but indignation, 
nothing but resentment. It wasn't my fault, he says. It had nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with you, says the man, Jamie's father, softly. No, I mean, I'm sorry for your loss, of course. But what are you doing here, persecuting me like this? It's out of order, not to mention against the law. You simply can't treat people like this, Mr. Holland. It, it's, well, it's not on. Holland stares at Richard, stares and stares, and Richard is again struck by the deadness in his eyes, by the complete and utter lack of emotion. It's as though emotion slips in and out of the old man like a radio signal, sometimes strident and overwhelming, sometimes, like now, utterly absent, leaving nothing but blankness, white noise. Abruptly, Holland crosses the kitchen and yanks open a drawer so violently that its contents make a metallic rattle. Richard's aching bladder clenches again as the old man reaches in and selects a carving knife with a curved serrated blade. He pushes the drawer shut and walks back across the kitchen, the knife held loosely by his side. He stares at Richard, stares and stares. He places the knife on the table. Its blade catches the light. You can't treat people like this, Holland repeats flatly. He pauses as if weighing up the words. Is that right, Mr. Richard Jeremy Klein? Is that what you think? Richard licks his lips. He feels blood or sweat trickling down his face. When he speaks, his lips tremble, a sensation that starts right back in his jaw and which he can't seem to stop. Look, he says. What do you want from me? Money? An apology? Whatever it is, you've got it. Holland just stares at him. Stares and stares. Richard says, It wasn't my fault. Really, it wasn't. I was there, but I didn't do anything. It's poor Jarvis you want. He's the one you should be looking for. Holland closes the photograph album, moves it out of the way and replaces it with the scrapbook. He opens the scrapbook and Richard sees that various newspaper cuttings have been pasted into it. The first is from the South Wales Echo. It's dated Monday, September 6, 1999. The headline reads, Mystery of Missing Local Man. On the right of the page is a head and shoulder shot of a chubby man in his twenties with a neatly trimmed goatee. Beneath the photograph, the caption reads, Paul Jarvis disappeared after playing snooker. Before Richard can read the story, Holland flicks the page over. The South Wales echo again. Friday, September 10th. Distraught wife pleads for missing husband to get in touch. Your boys need you. We all love you. Please come home. Another turn of the page. Friday, September 17th. Missing man. Police baffled. It's possible he may have been abducted. Another turn. Wednesday, October 6th. Midnight vigil for Paul. I'm not giving up hope. I know he's out there somewhere, says wife Sonia. Another turn. A different newspaper. Tewkesbury Time. Tuesday, March 12th, 2002. Vanish off the face of the earth. The words of the story jitter in time with Richard's pounding head as he attempts to read them. Mystery today surrounds the disappearance of Tewkesbury man Glenn Healy, 29, who was... Holland flicks the page over again. Richard looks up and his head is not just pounding now, but swimming with the threat of unconsciousness, his vision swarming with blackness like a mass of insects. Panic gnaws at the edges of his thoughts. A queasy, feverish sensation rushes through his body. Glenn, he whispers. There was me, Glenn, Paul, and Michael Darwin, concludes Holland, and flicks forward a few more pages to a newspaper report bearing a grainy portrait of an older but still recognised version of Richard's old school friend and a headline which Richard's buzzing, frantic mind can't even take in. Abruptly, he starts to cry. All his school friends missing, probably dead. 
He had no idea. After school, they drifted apart, went their separate ways. He hasn't spoken to any of them for almost twenty years, all of them living in different parts of the country, their disappearances unconnected. Oh, God, what is this madman planning to do to him? This can't be happening. It can't. Snivelling like a baby, he shakes his throbbing head from side to side. Please, he said, his voice small, broken. I didn't kill your son. You can't punish me for being there. I didn't do anything. Silence. Holland stares and stares at him. Is he enjoying Richard's suffering? Is the cunt getting off on his fear? Richard snatches at the anger inside him, grabs it and uses it, his only alternative to a weapon. You're a fucking sadist, he wails, all snot and spit. A fucking murdering sadist. You're ten times worse than me and my friends ever were. Well, you know what? I'm glad your son's dead. I'm fucking glad. His voice chokes off. The scrapbook is still open before him. The headline, he couldn't read before now, swims into focus. Missing man feared dead. That dead, printed in black block capitals, seems to mock and echo his own words. Mortal terror grips his body. Please, he sobs. Please, I'm sorry. I'm begging you, Mr. Holland, please don't hurt me. I have a daughter, Natalie. I love her so much, so much. And she loves me. Think of her. She's only seven. Please don't leave her without a daddy. Holland is silent for a moment longer. And then he says, she'll be better off without you. No, Richard screams. No, please, look, I'll do anything, anything. How much do you want? Name your price, whatever you want, it's yours. Holland looks at him with contempt. You think... I can put a price on my son's life. How much is your daughter's life worth, Mr. Klein? Tell me that. Richard hangs his head. Please, he whispers. Please. He looks at the knife on the kitchen table. Please don't hurt me. Holland sighs. I'm not going to hurt you, he says. Richard looks up, suspecting some trick, but hope leaps inside him regardless. What? What are you going to do? Holland doesn't answer. Instead, he walks over to Richard and then moves to stand behind him. Richard tenses. He hears the man's breath, feels the warmth of it on the back of his head. What is Holland going to do? Cut his throat? Inject him with something? Some paralyzing drug? But the old man does neither of these things. Instead, he grips the handles of the wheelchair, kicks off the brake and wheels Richard backward in an arc away from the table. This wheelchair belonged to my wife, he says. In 1988, she had a stroke which paralysed her. She was only 45. The doctors thought it was brought on by the stress of what happened to Jamie. She never recovered. She died three years later. I don't think she tried to recover. When Jamie was taken from her, she just gave up, lost the will to live. It's not my fault, Richard wants to say, but instead, he says, I'm sorry. No, you're not, says Holland. You're only saying that in the hope it'll save your skin. He wheels Richard out of the room and into a dingy hallway. More faux wood walls. A heavily patterned carpet that has seen better days in many of them. At the bottom of the staircase is a chair lift, a metal platform attached to a mechanical pulley system. With practiced ease, Holland manipulates the chair in the tight space until it's positioned squarely on the metal platform. He presses a button and the pulley wheels whine as the platform bearing the wheelchair slowly ascends. Why are you bringing me up here? Richard asks, voice cracked, nervous. Guided tour, Holland says flatly. Nothing more is said until the platform clicks to a halt at the top of the stairs. Same heavily patterned carpet, cream walls that have darkened to the colour of custard. A ragged, dusty spider's web clings to the light fixture in the centre of the ceiling. There are five doors, all closed. One at each end of the corridor, 
two on Richard's right, one on the small section of left-hand wall, which is not taken up by the staircase. Holland stops at the first of the doors on the right. It's only when he produces a set of keys that Richard notices it is locked. As Holland unlocks the door, Richard wonders whether the room beyond is to be his prison, and for how long. He has the sudden frightening notion that Holland tends to keep him as a kind of surrogate son. Perhaps he thinks that it's Richard's duty to take the dead boy's place. Is this what happened to Jarvis and Glenn and Mike? Did they refuse to play the old man's game? Were they found wanting and subsequently disposed of? For the time being, Richard decides it'll play along with whatever Holland has in mind. He will be polite and compliant, but he will look constantly for a chance to turn the tables to escape. Holland can't keep him taped up forever. Sooner or later, Richard's bound to get his chance, and when it comes, he is determined to take it. He thinks of Angie and Natalie waiting for him at home. He thinks of the police looking for him. He tries to stay positive, tries not to think about the alternative. Holland opens the door and pushes Richard inside. The room's a hovel. There's an animal stench which turns Richard's stomach and which his body immediately reacts to as a threat. He feels his balls contracting, his heart quickening, his hairs rising stiffly on his arms. This is a bad place, an awful place. He squirms in his seat, certain that his bladder will let go at any moment. Please, he says, take me out of here. His voice is odd and hollow. I can't stand it. I think I'm going to be sick. That's guilt, Mr. Klein. Holland says, guilt and shame. Richard feels faint and queasy. He's sweating. Please, he says again. Look around, Mr. Klein, Holland says. Look at what you're responsible for. Richard wants to close his eyes, to retreat into himself, but he forces himself to look around. The floor of the room is bare wood, which looks as though it's been stained and scrubbed many times over. The low wattage bob in the ceiling is enclosed within a steel mesh cage, like a light in a prison cell. There are wooden shutters over the solitary window and thick steel bars over the shutters. The bed in the corner has been upended and leans at an angle against the wall. The mattress has been pulled off and ripped apart. It looks as though someone or something has made a nest out of the bent and broken bed frame and the sagging mangled mattress which is spilling guts of warding and foam. The walls, painted white, are scratched and gouged and stained like the floor. How can Richard possibly be responsible for this? He doesn't trust himself to speak, and even if he wanted to, he doubts he would be able to say anything. His throat is tight, his voice clogged and solid. The thought of being locked in here, of spending even a single night in this awful place, makes him jittery with panic. Behind him, Holland grips the handles of the wheelchair, and the front wheels squeak a little as he swivels it around. Now Richard can see the wall opposite the window, and the one he didn't see when he entered the room because it would have meant twisting his head to look over his shoulder. There are dozens of pictures on the walls, an overlapping collage of them, and it takes Richard a moment to fully comprehend what he's seeing. When he does, he groans and slumps, and it feels as if water, alternately cold and hot, is gushing through his body. The feeling is only exacerbated when his bladder finally lets go, instantly soaking his crotch and the underside of his legs. The pictures on the walls are photographs of himself, photographs which must have been taken over several weeks, perhaps months. The photographs are mostly head and shoulder shots. In them, Richard wears a variety of expressions and is pictured in a variety of locations. Some of the photographs are blurred, some clear. In some, he's wearing his business suit and others he's casually dressed. All the photographs have been blown up to A4 size, printed on cheap paper and taped to the wall. The most terrifying thing, however, is that almost all the pictures have been frenziedly defaced. 
his cheeks shredded, his eyes gouged out as though by knives or claws. This blatant display of inarguable, unadulterated violence which has been perpetrated against his image and therefore by association against him makes him real. The power of it, the intent, is almost overwhelming. His heart is pummeling so hard that he wonders whether he's about to have a heart attack. He peels apart his gluey lips and forces himself raspily to speak. Do you really hate me so much, he says. Holland's voice behind and above him is bland, without inflection. Yes, I do, but I didn't do this, if that's what you mean. Richard's not sure what he's been told. What? Who did, then? Who do you think, you stupid man, says Holland. It was Jamie. Richard feels as if all sense of meaning is slipping away from him. But you told me Jamie was dead. No, I didn't. I told you I'd lost him. I didn't say he was dead. Richard notices something that the shock of the ravaged photographs of himself had caused him to previously ignore. And it's as though the answer to a puzzle has suddenly become sparklingly clear. To the right of the photographs is a bolted door. A rather hatch no more than three feet high. It looks like a storage space, somewhere to put toys or bedding. His hands clutch the arms of the wheelchair. Please get me out of here, he whimpers. Get me out of here now. I've cared for Jamie long enough, Mr. Klein. It's a thankless task. Even I'm not entirely safe. Holland leans forward and pulls back the sleeve of his cardigan. Richard sees a long, jagged scar running all the way down his forearm. I've tried to educate him, Holland continues, to explain to him why he's like he is, and more specifically who has made him this way. I think he understands a little, as you can see from the photographs. He's certainly eager to meet you. Richard starts to plead as Holland crosses the room to the hatch and pulls back the bolt. His pleas rapidly dissolve into wordless breathy screams as the old man retreats hurriedly to the door, pulls it closed behind him and turns the key in the lock. Holland's footsteps fade along the landing, but Richard barely registers them. He's preoccupied with frantically trying to tear himself free of the wheelchair, rocking to and fro, his breath coming too quickly, sparks dancing in front of his eyes. Even above the sounds of his panic, however, he hears scratching and snuffling and snorting coming from behind the hatch, and as the hatch opens, revealing a long taloned hand attached to a scrawny, filthy arm, he feels as helpless as the schoolboy he once was, and realises that perhaps the years haven't changed him that much after all. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities 
abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. That was Mark Morris's Salad Days, as read by J.K. Shepler. Jedediah Kalanu Shepler was born in Texas. He spent formative years in Northern California, then returned to Texas to get an honors degree, summa cum laude, in anthropology from the University of Houston. He lives in the traditions of both the European Renaissance and feudal Japan, and believes diverse pursuits and interests build keen minds and bodies. He is, consequently, a student of martial arts, a practitioner of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and is a surfer, artist, and filmmaker. He's acted in and produced music videos as well as served as a rigger, greensman, propsman, and stunt coordinator. He also dabbles in music. Jed has worked in logistics, dog training, security, education, and other jobs and says that he is not entirely sure he's qualified to do anything, but that he is a great respecter of fine storytelling and of the tellers of tales and that he has very proud to contribute his narrations. Currently, Jed is working on a book about late 19th and early 20th century glass bottles found in Houston and of the forgotten history that is all around us and just under our feet. He lives in the Houston Heights of Texas, and he likes cats and dogs but doesn't have any, and sometimes he scribbles short, humorous movie reviews that no one reads. You can correct that last bit by stopping by his site at downthemoviehole.blogspot.com. Link will be in the show notes. And I'm keeping an eye out for his thoughts on Rogue One. We had differing opinions on The Force Awakens. As always, Jedediah, thank you. Our second story of the night comes from Cameron Trost, an emerging writer from Brisbane, Australia. He concocts tales that combine a strong dose of mystery with an unsettling hint of familiarity while exploring the absurdities and peculiarities of society and the human mind. Cameron is the author of the collection Hoffman's Creeper and Other Disturbing Tales, the dark thriller Letterbox, and the suburban suspense novella Let Darkness Take Hold. He keeps a blog at trustlibrary.blogspot.com. Link will be in the show notes. Lend me your ears, children of the night. Here comes Cameron Trost's The Legend of Redback Jack. Pommies! the man sitting on the bar stool asked laconically, as Clive Hadwick ordered a glass of Chardonnay for Penny and a pint of whatever the locals wet their whistles with for himself. There was neither reproach nor admiration in the man's voice. 
just a kind of disinterested curiosity that Clive and Penny were quickly learning was yet another peculiar Australian trait. Yes, we're from Nottinghamshire. Ah, oh, like Robin Hood, the publican cut in, as he poured Penny's glass of white wine from a bottle that had been opened several days earlier. Same neck of the woods, so to speak. He's our most famous criminal. He lived before the days when they started packing every bugger and his dog on ships and sending them out here, the man on the bar stool mused. Like most of the men there, and there were mostly men, he was watching the footy on the widescreen as he spoke. Oh yes, that's true, Clive smiled nervously. I've heard that you don't like talking about that episode in history. The publican slid him his lager. The convict stain and all that. Sure, some folks feel shamed about it. Can't understand why, though. Nah, me neither, Barstool Man added. None of us here are descended from convicts. Our lot came out well after the abolition of deportation to Queensland. But even if I had convict ancestry, I wouldn't be ashamed of it. As far as I'm concerned, the real criminals back in those days weren't 12-year-old boys nicking a loaf of bread or a pair of socks to ward off hunger and blisters. No, it was those who exploited them, keeping the battler in the gutter eye sat around in their manners, sipping tea and admiring portraits of their toffee-nosed great-grandfathers. Clive and Jenny did not laugh, as their two interlocutors had expected, giving rise to suspicions that the Pommies may have had a few toffee-nosed skeletons in their own closets. Anyway, the publican broke the silence, what in the world brings you out here to Redback Hill? The couple smiled at each other, knowingly, deciding whether to answer the question. We're on our honeymoon, Clive announced happily. The man on the barstool almost fell off it, and the publican came close to dropping the pint he was pulling. Even some of the other clients turned their attention from the footy match for a moment. Apparently, they had been listening in on the conversation the whole time. Honeymoon? Here in Redback Hill? The publican almost roared, and laughter broke out all around the pub. The spectacle was obviously more entertaining than the game. I know your lot are supposed to be mad, but that's absolutely bleeding insane. You flew around the world over Paris, Venice, Phuket, Cairns, and thousands of other romantic getaways just to come back to Redback Hill. Good thing you're newlyweds. Oh, where's my manners? Congratulations, by the way. Because otherwise you wouldn't have anything to do to keep yourselves busy out here. <laughs> the burst of laughter that had started to die down erupted again. I think they deserve a cold one on the house, Barstool Man suggested, giving Clive a friendly thump on the back. Sure do, the publican agreed. So, where are you staying? There's no hotel in town. We're staying on the hill. Booked it through an online property rental agency. On the hill? Redback Hill? In the old farmhouse? That's right. You seem surprised. Clive and Jenny looked around. Everybody was staring at them, wide-eyed. Their mouths were still open, but nobody was laughing anymore. You don't know the legend, then? What legend? The publican shook his head. They didn't mention that on the website, I bet. I'll tell you all about it. Then I'll make your bed up. I've got a spare room upstairs. You won't want to be sleeping on the hill once you've heard the legend of Redback Jack. Clive drove the rented four-wheel drive away from the pub and out of the township. 
He concentrated his attention on the dusty road that was only dimly lit, despite being the target of two powerful headlights. After driving for most of the day, and drinking three, or was it four, bitter lagers that had come from a tap marked ominously in red with XXXX, Clive was feeling sleepy. Redback Hill was not supposed to be far from the township though, according to his map. Not more than a ten minute drive. That must be it. Penny pointed towards a dark bulk that loomed before them like the arched back of some enormous dreamtime monster. It was a hill, not a mountain, but against the otherwise flat and sparsely wooded landscape, it was very impressive. I think they bought the honeymoon story, she smiled, then bit her lower lip in anticipation. Clive took his eyes off the road briefly, just long enough to offer his companion a wink. You're good at reading people. What do you think? They believed every word of it. We confirmed their conviction that all Brits are stark raving mad, that's all. Your honeymoon cover story, that was a great idea, Penny. I'm looking forward to really going on a honeymoon with you one day. She laid a hand on his thigh. Before we do that, you need to divorce that bitch of a wife of yours. I'm working on it, he assured her. It takes time. There was no sign indicating where to leave the road, but Clive noticed the track just in time. He swung to the left, sending the back wheels skidding on loose stones. I'm a bit worried that the locals will come up to check on us. They seem to take this red-back jack story rather seriously. Clive shook his head as he struggled to keep control of the steering wheel. That's precisely why they won't bother us. I hope you're right. He was about to reply, but Penny opened her mouth again before he had the chance. Yeah, yeah, I know. You're always right. Clive grinned at his companion. The publican's version of the legend wasn't the same in every detail as the one that you told me about. Of course not. Experience has taught me that legends always come in slight variations, regardless of how old they are or in which part of the world they're set. What I call the insider version tends to be the most historically accurate, but... Also, by definition, the least known, whereas the folklore version is what is dished up for tourists or published for bookworms. So, in the folklore version that the publican told us, the part about why Redback Jack was hiding out here in the middle of nowhere isn't true? The four-wheel drive dragged itself closer to the crest of the hill. In the morning, Clive and Penny would be able to see across the flat expanse of the mysterious outback that stretched out around them. But at that moment... Only the distant lights of the township to the east and the breathtaking fiery red line that marked the western horizon could be distinguished. It's not that it's untrue, Clive explained. The problem is that in the folklore version, as is generally the case, certain details are omitted. Redback Jack rarely lived, and he was a genuine bushranger. All versions of the legend state that he pulled off one of the most daring raids in Australian history when he attacked a gold convoy in 1867. As the publican told us, most of his gang were shot dead by the mounted guards, and those who survived, including a cousin of his, simply disappeared from the pages of history. Redback Jack headed west, into this area, and hid right here on this hill. The woman he'd loved betrayed him to the police, who promised a handsome reward for information leading to his capture. During the ensuing standoff, he was killed under a hail of bullets. Then we hear the part about how his ghost haunts the hill until this day, about how it seems to control the nature on the hill, making animals and plants alike act strangely, and that anybody foolish enough to venture onto it will face a painful death, Penny added. With a special torture reserved for those he hates the most bitterly, 
young women and policemen, and so forth and so forth. So what's missing from his version, the folklore version? The part about what Redback Jack's phantom does when it's not looking for mortals to torment? Precisely, because the locals don't want outsiders like us to even think about searching for the bushranger's hidden gold. The thought that after all these years, spanning several generations, of trying to find Redback Jack's gold, that a couple of pommies should beat them to it worries the hell out of them. You saw how disappointed the publican and that other bloke looked when we decided to stay up here despite their ghost story. They weren't afraid about ghouls or curses. They don't care about us. They're scared that we might find the long-lost horde. Penny smiled. Luckily for us, they don't know that we know about the gold. Lucky? No. Clive brought the four-wheel drive to a halt. We're excellent actors, that's all. Now let's go and enjoy our honeymoon, sweetheart. Clive swung his door open and jumped out, but Penny was less enthusiastic. From where she sat behind the windscreen, she studied the wooden monstrosity in which the two of them would be staying. The decrepit homestead was much like other old houses that she had seen around Queensland, but this one was in a particularly poor state. Despite the dark, she could see that the veranda, which seemed to run all the way around the house, had collapsed in several places, leaving holes gaping like giant mouths. Are you coming? Clive's voice startled her. She wanted to tell him to keep quiet, afraid that any noise would awaken a presence that was used to silence and solitude. I'm coming, Penny whispered so softly that her partner did not even hear. Without looking away from the sleeping house, she opened the door. The building gave her the impression that nobody had penetrated it in over a century and a half since the days of Redback Jack's final clash. Penny! Clive was in the middle of unloading his metal detector. I know what you're thinking, but we've spent nights in worse dumps than here. And imagine the kind of hotels we'll be able to stay in once we've got our hands on the lost treasure. I hope we'll find it. I hope we're not putting ourselves through this for nothing. Clive put the metal detector down and placed his hands on Penny's shoulders. The contact made them both smile. Look at me. We will find the gold. This is going to be the feather in our cap, the icing on our fucking cake. We'll be set for years to come, just the two of us. I'll get the divorce sorted out, and then we'll go on a real honeymoon. He was so confident, it was impossible to doubt their success. His hands left her shoulders and went back to unloading the vehicle. Let's go. We need to get some sleep. Tomorrow's going to be a long day. Penny smiled at him weakly, then felt her gaze drifting uneasily back towards the gloomy house. The following morning heralded not only a new day, but also another world. Clive and Penny ate breakfast on the most solid part of the veranda and took in the view. It's incredible, Clive. When we arrived last night, I felt like we were lost in a desert of darkness, a strange land that wasn't part of this planet. He put more water to boil on his portable kerosene cooker as he replied, And this morning we're lost in a desert of light, a strange land that isn't part of this planet. They laughed. It's spectacular, like being on the roof of an uninhabited world. Clive put his hand over hers. I was thinking of buying us a casa in the south of Spain. But maybe we should just buy this hill. I love the tranquility here. Buy here? We can't buy the property unless somebody can tell us who actually owns it. Good point, Clive admitted. Stuff buying it. We'll just squat it then. That is, as long as Redback Jack doesn't mind sharing it with us. He laughed as he looked around, 
waiting for the slain bushranger's ghost to appear and object to the suggestion. Clive, Penny warned him, no haunted talk, please. Only treasure talk. Fine. Talking about treasure, we'd better shake a leg. One last cup of tea for the road, then we need to thoroughly explore the house. Penny nodded. She knew the routine. The bushrangers of Australia, outlaws of the Wild West, and brigands of Europe had all used similar methods when it came to hiding their loot. Capture or death was a part of their dangerous lives, so they'd devised ways of leaving secret messages for their accomplices. These messages would indicate where the fruit of their labour had been stashed. According to all versions of the Redback Jack legend, none of the surviving bushrangers had found an opportunity to reclaim the treasure. So it was possible that a clue to the location had been left somewhere inside the house. If we can find a letter, a map, an object, symbols carved into the floors or walls, some kind of hidden message left by Redback Jack, we'll avoid having to spend days wandering round with a metal detector, Clive mused as the aroma of his tea wafted into his nostrils. The room we slept in was empty enough. There isn't a single item of furniture in it. It won't take us long to search the house if the other rooms are equally bare. Come to think of it, I'm rather surprised that you didn't inspect the premises before we settled in for the night. Clive grinned knowingly as he sipped his tea. You did? When? Just after our long kiss goodnight. I was worried that your imagination would keep you awake, but you slept like a log. Anyway, the other rooms aren't as destitute. The house isn't especially big. There's just one other bedroom, a kitchen that would have been pretty impressive back in its day, a study and a spacious living room. The kitchen and study are almost overflowing with crates, chests and piles of rubbish, much of which looks as though it hasn't been disturbed since... Clive crossed his fingers. Maybe 1867? Let's hope so. Talking about rooms, you didn't notice a bathroom with hot running water, I suppose. Afraid not, Princess Penny. There'll be no personal hygiene till we get our treasure and make our way back into town. If I'm not mistaken, there's a dunny over there, though. Clive pointed out a small, crumbling outhouse. Great. It's probably full of snakes. The search for Redback Jack's hidden message began in the makeshift bedroom. The only furniture consisted of two portable beds that Penny and Clive had set up in the middle of the room. The ceiling, four walls and floor were intact, although there were several boards that stuck out or had buckled inwards. A window had once provided the room with light and an amazing view, but it had since been boarded up from the inside. Now only thin beams of sunlight forced their way through what appeared to be bullet holes. After a few minutes, it became clear that there was nothing of interest to be discovered. The floor was covered with dust, the remains of deceased insects, some colourless chicken bones, and a few bullets. Clive put the bullets in a pocket, souvenirs of the legendary bushranger's bloody demise. Are you ready for a challenge, Penny? Sure. Where to next? Clive brushed decades of decay from his trouser knees. Just next door is the study, which is packed full of odds and ends that must have belonged to the previous owners, whoever they were. I think that it's our best bet. Penny followed him out of the bedroom and into the dark interior hallway. The door to the study creaked as Clive pushed it open, its rusty hinges groaning crankily at being disturbed. A challenge indeed, Penny gasped. There was hardly anywhere to walk, the floor was covered with piles of archaic objects swimming in a swamp of grime and cobwebs. A small window provided the explorers with some natural light, but there was also an old oil lamp hanging from the wall. Clive worked his way towards it, hoping that it would work after all these years. 
He preferred not to waste the precious power in his own electric torches whenever possible. Unfortunately, there was no longer any fuel in the lamp's reservoir. Some of the antiques here are worth quite a bit of money, Penny noted approvingly as she inspected the room. Over there in the corner is a Georgian mahogany chest of drawers, and despite being buried in ropes and chains, it seems to be in good condition. We could probably get 5,000 Australian dollars for that piece of work. Clive pointed his torch at the antique chest and nodded his head thoughtfully. That reminds me, I read somewhere that bushrangers often installed false panels in chests of drawers. I'll clear a path through these empty bottles and tins so we can get a closer look at it. Maybe you could check that they're all empty as I pass them back. The treasure hunters worked quickly but thoroughly. They knew what to look out for, anything that could be a writing, sketches or markings of any kind. Penny opened each tin and examined each bottle before stacking them neatly behind her. Penny's scream vibrated throughout the small study as she fell backward onto the bottles and tins that she had stacked behind her. What's wrong? Clive spun around to find her pointing at one of the tins. His torch lit up the object that had frightened his partner. It's just an old tea or a tobacco tin, Penny. No, she gasped. A spider! I hate them! Clive stepped closer. The tiny eight-legged creature was shiny black with a red mark on its oversized abdomen. Don't touch it, Clive instructed her calmly. She jumped to her feet and started inspecting her clothes nervously. I've never seen one before. What is it? Is it dangerous? It's a redback. As in, redback jack. Exactly. From what I've heard, if a healthy adult gets bitten by one, he or she will be sick for a day or two with headaches and vomiting. A single bite isn't usually venomous enough to kill, but several could prove fatal. He kicked the spider off its tin and crushed it under his boot. Penny was now at the door, ready to leave. Clive, I have to get out of here. How about I make you another tea? He looked at her sympathetically. Yes, please. Redback spiders and honeymoons just don't mix, do they? The water wasn't yet boiling when Clive strode out onto the veranda, wearing a smile as broad as an akubra. You haven't! He held up a sheet of time-worn paper. Show me! Did you find it in the chest of drawers? Nope. Clive held up the faded sketch of a twisted coolabar tree. I found it where any God-fearing man would seek salvation. In the Bible? Precisely. I gave the good book a bit of a shake, and this little treasure poked a dog-eared corner out. There was also a passage underlined, Matthew six twenty-one, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Isn't that lovely? Penny looked at the drawing of a tree. Her eyes narrowed. Are you sure this is going to help us? Of course. Look here. He indicated the initials R.J. that had been written in such a way as to make them appear to be a scattering of innocent sticks at the base of the tree. So we need to find this tree. It probably hasn't changed after all this time. Penny was already studying the few eucalypts that grew nearby. My biggest concern is that it may have been cut down, but if it's still alive, we will locate it. A hundred and thirty years is like the blink of an eye to a tree, and if Redback Jack was as good an artist as he was a bushranger, then this one will be quite easily distinguishable by its split trunk and five twisted limbs. Penny served two cups of tea. How will we know where to dig, though? Aha! Clive had been waiting for her to ask that question. Look here. He pointed out a semicircular shape that had been drawn on the black ink horizon. A setting sun, Penny told him. Not rising? 
she frowned. How can you tell if it's setting or rising? I can't, but that's not what interests me. The point is what the sun represents, and where it's placed in relation to the tree. What colour is the sun? It has no colour here. Clive rolled his eyes. Sure, but what colour is usually associated with the real sun? Yellow. Penny sipped her tea, then spat it out all over the veranda as understanding dawned. Golden! Here, take the sketch, but be careful with it. I'm going to get the metal detector and a shovel, just in case we come across the tree. There weren't a hundred trees on the hill, so Penny figured that if Clive was right, they would find the one represented in the drawing without too much trouble. She just hoped that it hadn't been cut down for firewood or struck by lightning at some point over the years. The red sun was lowering itself towards the endless horizon of the mysterious outback. The treasure hunters had wandered far from the hill, but it was still in sight, waiting darkly behind them. Penny stopped dead in her tracks, her eyes wide open. What's wrong, Penny? More redbacks. You didn't hear that? I didn't hear anything. What did it sound like? I don't know. Like a voice. Penny, you're giving me the creeps. Clive puffed his chest up like a courageous cock and looked around. We're alone, and I didn't say a word. But Penny was not listening to him. She was staring towards the fiery horizon and shuffling sideways. Then she looked down at the sketch before stepping forward a little. All thought of imaginary voices left Clive's mind as he realised what Penny was doing. His heart started beating faster as she put the twisted cooler bar into frame. She was trying to place herself exactly where the ill-fated bushranger would have been standing when he sketched the location of a treasure that he would not live to squander. That's the one! Clive caught his breath. The way the trunk had forked into two before sprouting its offspring of gnarled limbs, there was no mistaking that the cooler bar before them matched that of the drawing. The only major difference was that the tree now had only four limbs, not five. Time had taken its toll. Well done, Penny! However, you probably won't be able to find the exact location of the treasure using the sun, because our good old bushranger friend forgot to inform us of one important detail. The time of year he sketched his masterpiece. Clive stepped up to the living sculpture, brandishing his trusty metal detector, and hoping that he was right about the picture's significance after all. This will tell us exactly where the gold is buried. He started scanning the dry earth to the right-hand side of the bar tree, and within seconds an electronic beeping blared out through the still evening air. Eureka! Clive dropped the metal detector and ran towards Penny, who was shivering with excitement. We've done it! He grabbed Penny and lifted her up as high as he could. She kissed his forehead. We're rich! Not too loud, she warned him. I know that we're isolated here, but we shouldn't make too much noise, just in case there is somebody out there. He put her down. You're right. The job's not finished yet. I'm going to start digging before it gets any darker. Clive removed his metal detector from where it lay and thrust his shovel into the dusty earth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Clive was unsure how long he had been asleep, but it was the dead of night and he had been sleeping soundly. The effort of searching all day, digging around the buried chest and then carrying the heavy prize back up the hill, had worn him out. He opened his weary eyes and was surprised to find faint candlelight flickering against the ceiling. The four corners of the ceiling were poorly lit 
and black shadows were crouched in them as though observing him. The hairs on the back of his neck pricked up. You're awake, Penny commented calmly as she tugged at the rope around Clive's thighs. Penny, what are you doing? He struggled to sit up, but could not. She knew how to tie a good knot. The shadows in the dark corners advanced ever so slightly down the wall and then retreated back into their hiding place, repeating the same movement over and over. The chest of gold was no longer in the corner of the room where it had been when Clive made the mistake of going to sleep. I'm sorry, Clive, I really am, but we can't take the gold away from here. It doesn't belong to us. What are you talking about? The shadowy corners bulged more fervently. You have to believe me when I tell you that I really would have liked to marry you and to finally go on our honeymoon. Penny stood up and looked at her prisoner timidly, but she did not make eye contact. She could not bring herself to do that. Jack doesn't hate women, Clive. The legends are all lies. He told me so. Don't worry. He won't hurt you. He promised me that he wouldn't. He made a proposition that I can't refuse, a treasure more valuable than all the gold in the world. You spoke to Redback Jack. Clive struggled vainly against the ropes. This is a joke, isn't it? But Penny's face showed him that she was serious. You've gone mad! I'm sorry, Clive. He will set you free before dawn. He promised. Penny smiled at him tenderly, then left the bedroom, closing the door behind her. The shadows came down from the corners. Hundreds of shiny black shadows scurrying frantically towards the floor. Clive was soon surrounded by them, and they were closing in. Penny! he cried out, but the woman he loved was already far away. There would be no treasure, no divorce, no honeymoon followed by an exciting new life. Penny had chosen otherwise. As the black shadows crawled up the bed and onto Clive's arms and legs, his skin crawled with dread. Then we hear the part about how his ghost haunts the hill until this day, about how it seems to control the nature on the hill, making animals and plants alike act strangely, and that anybody foolish enough to venture onto it will face a painful death. Redbacks were on his face, but his arms were tied by his sides. He closed his eyes and mouth and shook his head from side to side in a final desperate attempt to save himself. The tiny black and red creatures bit him, burning his cheeks, his lips, his eyelids. They were inside his ears and probing at his nostrils. Others swarmed up his arms and legs into private places where he could not bear the thought of them being. They were crawling, inspecting, biting into him, injecting fire into his vulnerable body. The pain spread throughout him until it became too excruciating. Then, just as Redback Jacks had before him, Clive's heart stopped beating on Redback Hill and remained there, hidden like the bushranger's treasure. That was Cameron Trost's The Legend of Redback Jack, as read by Dan Raybarts. No stranger to tales to terrify, Dan Raybarts is a writer of fantasy novels and speculative fiction, sometimes narrator of podcasts, including stories for the Hugo Award-winning Starship Sofa, occasional sailor of sailing things, and father of two wee miracles in a little house on a hill 
or the Southern Sun. In 2014, he received the Sir Julius Vogel Award for the Best New Talent, Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Terror, the horror anthology he co-edited with Lee Murray, also won the SJV for Best Collected Work and the Australian Shadows Award for Best Edited Work. His short stories have appeared in venues such as Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Aurealis Magazine, Andromeda Spaceways In-Flight Magazine, and on the Parsec Award-winning steampunk podcast Tales from the Archives, among many others. Thank you, Dan. Our third story for the night is from L.P. Lee. Born to a British father and South Korean mother, L.P. Lee grew up somewhere in between South London and South Korea. A sinologist and anthropologist by training, Lee now works in digital media. You can see more of her stories at www.l-p-lee.com. Link will be in the show notes. And now, L.P. Lee's Reflections in a Mechanical Eye. Lying in bed, Sujin could hear the shik, shik, shik of its whirring knives. It was helping itself to the bread and butter again. It had already carved up the French baguette into several stale chunks, and now it was slicing through a brick of butter. She could imagine the butter melting against the blade, leaving oily marks on the metal. Pching! The toaster sang. The slices of bread would be hot and golden. Whirr, whirr, went its wheels as it glided across the kitchen and picked up the bread. Now it would be spreading the butter, neatly and quickly. And now it was raising the food to its mouth and chomping on it slowly, deliberately. Sujin knew its routine fairly well by now. It happened once a fortnight or so playing human, as her guillamo, stepmother, called it. She could hear it growing restless downstairs. It was becoming agitated again. When would it learn? She could hear it gliding to the dustbin and regurgitating the bread and butter. She could hear it wheeling around in circles for a full minute. Then it went to the sink and began scrubbing its knives ferociously. Sujin shrank in her bed and pulled the covers up to her face. She glanced at the clock on the wall. It was 4 a.m. It was always 4 a.m. when this happened. Why couldn't they get rid of it? Something was clearly malfunctioning. It had been like this for a while now, and its episodes were growing more and more frequent. It used to occur once every few months or so, but now it was happening on a weekly basis. Where was this heading? Sujin was frightened of it. But it was good for business, Hergiyamo said. No one else on Surgery Street had anything quite like it. When prospective patients visited Hergiyamo's practice and began to get cold feet from all the talk of snipping, sawing, and stitching, she would call it out. The moment their resolves wavered, she would press a button. The door of the office would swing open, and in it would roll the most perfect woman imaginable. Designed with the obsessiveness of a zealot, 
every detail had been meticulously measured and arranged. It had an impossibly slim body, with snow-white skin, translucent and ageless. It was the soft, unwrinkled, characterless skin of a child on the body of a woman. The face dazzled the clients by conforming precisely to the ideal proportions, eyes wide with double eyelids, a nose straight and high-boned, a chin small and narrow. It would be wearing a simple white dress, and the wheels beneath its feet would whir as it twirled around the room for them, exhibiting its beauty from different angles. The client's faces would blossom in amazement, and Sujin's Gayamo would smile. "'Don't you want to look like her?' she would ask. Sometimes Sujin worked for her Guillermo, serving instant coffee in porcelain cups to the waiting clients. Mainly, they were girls who had been gifted new noses for passing their exams, whether they wanted it or not. Or they were ambitious young women, keen to gain a competitive edge in the workplace. They had already done the basics before university, the eyes. Now, wanted to upgrade their chins before an interview— these days, there were more and more medical tourists from China, heads filled with the polished bone structures and pretty pallor of Korean actresses they had seen on TV. Sometimes there were men, of course. One wanted a job with Samsung, and had heard they subscribed to the principles of face-reading in interviews. Another wanted a girlfriend, but no one would consider him because of his displeasing forehead. The preferences of women had grown more particular over the years. And there was a young student from Busan who wanted the soft feline features of his favorite pop star. When the client was ready for the operating table, the automaton would change out of its white dress and into the garb of a doctor. The instruments would emerge from its hands. So as not to frighten the patient with its transformed appearance, it would only enter the theater after the anesthetic had set in. It would do its work under the supervision of Sujin's Guillermo, and by the time the patient reawakened, it would be back in the white dress with a smile on its face, the instruments folded back into its wrists. Sometimes, as she helped the patient into the recovery room, Sujin would think about the look in its eyes, how it seemed, for all of its smiling, as if it was somehow unhappy. But automatons were not built to be unhappy. The market was too competitive for that. Still, the look in its eyes unsettled Sujin. She would help the nurse put the patient to bed, and afterwards, when she returned to the small reception of their boutique clinic, she would glance nervously at it. It would be sitting in a chair, straight-backed, legs crossed, pristine in its white dress and heels. And Sujin would recall how it had looked at the patient, how its eyes had lingered on the patient's face post-operation, as though studying the remaining vestiges of idiosyncrasy, the slight asymmetry of the woman's features, the imperfect eyebrows, the slight shadow on the lip, Sometimes, Sujin would go down to the basement to pick up supplies from the storage room, and as she did so, she would pass the door to the bathroom. 
The door would be ajar, and through the crack, Sujin would see the automaton looking at itself in the mirror. It would be gazing into its own glassy eyes, touching its features with one perfectly manicured hand. The other, Sujin would notice, would be opened up with a surgical knife extended. After a long day's work, they would head home together, Sujin, her Giamo, and the automaton, and prepare dinner. Sujin's father would usually come home late, but dinner would always be neatly set out on the table for him. Sometimes Sujin would be busy studying when she would hear him return. She would approach the door and find the automaton removing his coat for him. As the automaton turned around to hang it up, Sujin would occasionally notice her father's eyes lingering on the beautiful form of the forever young assistant. Then her Giyama would appear and his eyes would snap back into focus. On a normal weekday night after dinner, Sujin's father and Giyama would sit in front of the television to follow their favorite soap operas, while the automaton busily tidied up the apartment, and Sujin would go out to meet her friends. On her way out, Suchin sometimes caught her Giyamo picking on the automaton. It would be doing nothing wrong, but Suchin's Giyamo would find a fault and start scolding it. The automaton would nod sweetly and quietly continue its cleaning. At night, Suchin would lie in bed wondering when it would have another episode. She had been startled a few nights ago to hear a sound coming from its room a rasping, alien sound that went on and on. And slowly it dawned on her that the automaton had a voice. It was speaking to itself. Sujin checked the bedside clock. It was 4 a.m. She strained her ears to listen to the rasping sound, but it was difficult to discern any words. She slid out of bed and crept into the corridor. The automaton's voice was growing louder. Through the darkness, Sujin tiptoed downstairs towards its holding room. Light was seeping out through the crack under the door, and Sujin could see its shadow moving back and forth erratically. But as she approached, the shadow went still and the sound stopped. She was pondering this the next day when she went to get the soles of her boots repaired. There was an old man... Mr. Park, who had a small makeshift shelter next to the underground station, and made a living fixing shoes. He was short and wiry, with a slightly faraway gentle manner. As he sat on his stool and examined the shoes that customers would bring him, sometimes he would ask trivial questions about their lives, and other times he would disappear into the stores in his head, and pick one out and begin recounting it for no particular reason. This time, as he inspected the soles of Sujin's boots, he began reminiscing about a grand duplex near which he had once worked. He told her how there had been one resident, a Mr. Sun, a balding businessman, who would come to have his shoes waxed, and would talk very proudly to everyone waiting about an exotic bird he kept in a cage in his living room. It had been selectively bred to such an exquisite degree of beauty that the owner delighted in it every day 
and would feed it from his own hand. It was a creature of rare lustrous colors that hopped from foot to foot silently in its spacious cage. It had only one issue. While it was a spectacular creation aesthetically, the magnificence of its beauty had been offset in its other genes, and so it was a frail, fatigued bird, one which could neither sing nor live freely in the wild. Had it been set loose to join its brethren in the trees, it could not have survived. Every time Mr. Sun came to visit Mr. Park, as he waited for his shoes to be shined, he would talk about this rare and beautiful bird of his, and his face would beam with some hint of smugness, until one day he stopped visiting. Mr. Park did not know why until another customer of his, a young woman, explained as she waited for the towering spires of her heels to be adjusted that Mr. Sun had been discovered in bed with his eyes pecked out. The bird had somehow taken to attacking its master with such astonishing savagery that it was almost as though it had over the years built up an insatiable rage over its condition. Mr. Park, with a shake of his head, had handed the heels back to the young lady and said that surely she must be projecting, that birds are simply not capable of harboring the same depth and complexity of feeling as man. And then he expressed his sympathies very sincerely, that it was a very shocking tragedy indeed. Sujin received a receipt from him at the close of the story and was told to return on Monday to collect her boots. The same day that she visited Mr. Park, she also met her language partner, an exchange student from the Netherlands, whom she'd met at the Global Lounge in Yonsei. He wanted to explore the nightlife, and invited her to go clubbing with a group of international students in Abgujong. The foreign students were all excited about the district, because it was glamorous and known to have beautiful women. It was also an area that specialized in plastic surgery. And in fact, Sujin's family clinic was just around the corner. Yet although she had grown up surrounded by maid faces, Sujin felt strange wandering around the club. For the first time, it really seemed to her that everywhere she looked, the same face was reappearing in slightly different guises perhaps wearing different earrings or a dissimilar shade of lipstick. The issue was the formula. The formula for beauty was so precise these days. She had friends who would sit in cafes off campus and play a guessing game when a maid face walked in. Which actress had the patient reference to her doctor? Was it Han Gain's nose? Han Yishu's chin? Kim Tae-hee's eyes? Dizzied a little by her cocktail, Sujin began to feel exposed. She felt that while her character was on full display in her face, she could not read so easily the personalities of the faces that surrounded her. Like a shoe that had not yet been broken in, the contours of the face and the way that the flesh moved did not fit perfectly with the spirit of the person. It took time for new faces to fit properly. Her Dutch friend was having a wonderful night. His eyes had widened to saucers. He was as cheerful as the Cheshire cat. She's cute, 
he said of every face. Sujin went into the bathroom, where there was a lounge area filled with pink satin sofas. A group of clubbers were seated in a line, legs elegantly crossed as they chatted and reapplied their makeup. When Sujin walked in, they all lifted their heads and looked at her at the same time. It gave her a sensation of vertigo. She washed her hands and stood at the sink. When she looked in the mirror, she noticed with newfound clarity how subtly asymmetrical her own face was, how tired it looked in comparison. Her nose was a little crooked, her eyes were single-lidded. She had been told before that her jaw was too large. She had always brushed away these ideas of what a face should be like. But now, for the first time, she began to feel that perhaps she was missing out on something. When she returned to the table, the boys were away dancing with local girls. The international girls, left behind, looked sour. A mixture of European and North American accents surrounded Sujin. "'Do you think Maria's natural?' a girl was asking. "'I bet she isn't,' chimed another girl. "'I think she's Chinese-American,' said a third. "'All the pretty Asians are plastic,' said a fourth. One of the male students leaned across the table to Sujin and asked, "'So, what have you had done?' "'Fuck off!' said Sujin. The next few days were tedious. Sujin felt irritable with her studies and uninterested in her works at the clinic. She was preoccupied and distant. She didn't even think about the automaton until its episode on Thursday. It was right after a consultation, and Sujin was clearing up coffee cups from her guillamo's desk. Rather than put on its usual charming performance for the prospective patient, the automaton had been listless as it twirled around to exhibit its beauty. As soon as the client left the room, her guillamo's gracious demeanor vanished and she shot a sharp look at it. "'Why aren't you smiling?' she snapped. The automaton was standing by the desk like a shop mannequin. It was silent. It stared glassily at its master." It did not seem to acknowledge the demand at all. Sujin's Guillamo frowned. Her voice rose. Well? Slowly, it cracked a small smile. Its lips inched outwards and upwards until a perfect smile was presented, complete with pearly teeth. But it did not stop there. It stretched its smile so widely and brightly that it seemed somehow indecent. It glowed as if to spite her with its unbridled happiness. That's better, said Sujin's Gayamo. For the rest of the day, Sujin could not shake the image of the automaton's smile from her head. Even when she returned home, she found it difficult to concentrate on her studies. From her bedroom, she could hear the faint sound of the television that her father and Guillermo were watching. She could hear the tap running in the kitchen as the automaton cleaned the dishes. She tried to focus on her reading, but her attention was drawn to the sound of the automaton moving around the apartment. It had finished the dishes and was now attending to the laundry. Sujin heard the washing machine switch on. 
she heard the automaton's wheels roll sharply across the corridor to feed the fish in the aquarium. She heard it begin aggressively mopping the floor. As the television was turned off and her family retired to bed, Sujin remained awake, tense beneath the covers. It took a long while for her to drift off, but sure enough, at 4 a.m. she was disturbed from her sleep by a sound. She sat upright. Anxiously she focused on it. It was the sound of the front door opening and closing. All the next day they tried to figure out what had happened, but no one knew where the automaton had gone. In a furious temper, Sujin's Gayamo tried to register it as missing with the police, but they informed her that they did not deal with mechanical persons. All of the staff at the clinic found it more difficult that day. It was only after the automaton's disappearance that they realized just how valuable its contributions had been. Sujin was constantly busy and didn't have a single moment to herself until she was sent down to the basement to pick up some fresh syringes. The lift doors seemed to take longer than usual to open when she arrived in the basement. Walking down the corridor, Sujin felt the hairs on the back of her neck prickle. As she approached the storage room, she became conscious of a faint whirring sound. It was a sound that she was familiar with. A horrible sensation began to rise in her. She became aware of the beating of her heart. The door of the storage room opened. Sujin stepped back and brought her hand up to her mouth. The automaton emerged, but it was not the same as she had known it. It had cut up its own face, slashed its cheeks and lips. Half of its nose hung limply by a string of skin near its mouth. It had rearranged its face into a look of complete asymmetry. It advanced on her, eyes gleaming above the whirring of knives which spun in the place of hands. Sujin gasped and fled. In a panic, she arrived back at the lift. There was a ping as the doors opened, and rushing inside, Sujin looked back to see that it had caught up with her. It was now only a few paces away. Sujin froze, but it was no longer in pursuit. It just stood there in the dim light of the corridor. As the doors slid shut, Sujin watched it. The look on its face was triumphant. That was L.P. Lee's Reflections in a Mechanical Eye, as read by Josie Babin. I really like that story, and I always do like Josie's reads. By day, Josie is a biologist, a happy little cog in the grand machine known as medical research. When not at work or enjoying the great outdoors of San Diego, she can be found at home with her three loving companions, two feline and one human. She records in a tiny bedroom library surrounded by literature and scientific works, as well as a few video game boxes. Gamsahamnida, Josie. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on iTunes or Acast or wherever you found our show. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by Diane Serverson. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network.
dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the show and any of the others in the District of Wonders, please think about taking out a monthly subscription over on Patreon. Any little amount helps just to keep the stories coming and the shows rolling on. We want to bring out the best stories out there and deliver them to you free. But we certainly need some help and support. Please think about popping over to Patreon. A little as $2.99 a month would be such a great donation. Just want to say thank you so much for all your support over the years. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.